Now it says that Samuel died, and, and this is interesting because Samuel was one of the few allies that David had. As David was on the run from Saul, he really only had three people that he could count on. The first one, and most important, was the Lord himself. The second one was the king's son, Jonathan. And the third one was Samuel, the one who anointed Saul to be king and ultimately anointed David to be king as well. Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. The scripture says, Then Samuel died. This great man dedicated to the Lord and serving him from his youngest days now dies. As godly as he was, it didn't save him from an earthly death because he was still a descendant of Abraham. But God's work in Israel did not end when Samuel died. God's work never is dependent on only one man. If it is written, then Samuel died, it is also written, and David arose. God's work may begin with a man, but it never ends with one man. God continues and sustains his work as he pleases. Now let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 25, as Pastor Rob begins in verse 1. Uh, Let's let's open our Bibles now. We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel, chapter 25, this evening. Last week, you remember that we looked at chapter 24 and... That chapter really was about a near miss for Saul because David, as you know, went from the the wilderness of Maon, which is in the Judean foothills, uh, right to the west of the Dead Sea. And he went into Engedi. And if you remember last week, we looked at some photos and some videos and and just kind of got an idea of what this Engedi looked like. But that's where David and his 400 men um, where they had camped out and trying to escape the capture of Saul, still chasing David, still bent in his anger and his frustration, his jealousy. And so David and his men, they hide out there. And you remember that while Saul was in that cave, David, uh, and these caves could accommodate uh, several hundred men in some of them, and, and, and David and his men were in there. And David snuck up on Saul's robe that was laying in a part by itself, and he cut a piece of it off. So when Saul was done doing his business, he puts his robe back on, and he goes out, and David talks to him, you know, from the the cave, and comes out. And uh, you recall that Saul seemed, on the outward, he seemed very repentant. He seemed very sorry for what he had been doing, and uh, because he knew that David and his men could have easily killed him in that place, and, um, but they spared his life. And Saul was very grateful, obviously. He seemed very repentant on the outward, 
But we know, and we'll see this next week, that Saul, it was just a temporary fancy. It wasn't anything that was long-lasting, which is generally true of somebody who is bent on anger and full of jealousy. Uh, Emotions are an amazing thing. One minute you can be calm and peaceful, and everything seems good in the world and good inside. Everything seems to be quiet, and all it just takes one little thing that can just ignite it like a powder keg, and then you're filled with rage and anger again, and those old feelings just rise up to the surface very quickly. Anybody relate to that? (laughs) I think we all can, because we're people, and unfortunately, feelings can get the best of us, and we have to be very careful with those kinds of things. And so David, now he's he's in En Gedi, and now he's going to be leaving again to the wilderness of Maon. He's going back to a similar place where he was, the same general area, and we'll look at that. This is a fairly lengthy chapter, so normally on shorter chapters, I like to read the whole thing and kind of get it in context, but we won't do that tonight. Uh, We're just going to get into it, and I would encourage you to read it again this evening before you go to bed. It's a a really wonderful chapter, and I, I think you'll you'll find that the the star of the show, really, of this chapter is a woman by the name of Abigail. We're going to see that David marries her. She's married to this gentleman by the name of Nabal, and they couldn't be two different people. Nabal was a scoundrel, and that's what his name means. But his wife, Abigail, was a very beautiful young lady, full of understanding, very intelligent, very prudent, and her husband was the exact opposite, exact opposite. And so we're going to see uh, embedded in this, um, in this event tonight a love story beginning to unfold. And it's really quite touching, actually, to see what we're going to hear from Abigail's heart toward David. And then seeing David crack like an egg when he was so bent. And what we'll see as we get into this, what I'm talking about, but David was ready to go up to the, the, the city there in Carmel and, and kill her husband. And we'll find out why that is. That, that's a, a little bait switch to throw you. Um, but Abigail intercedes on behalf of her husband, saving his life. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful event that we'll see. Not so much for Nabal, but for Abigail and David. And so... We're going to see tonight that Abigail is going to be a type of the believer because she's so different than her husband, Nabal. She's a type of a believer, and her husband, Nabal, is a type of the flesh. Just somebody who is bent on just just a really nasty person. And have you met any nasty people in your life? Raise your hand if you've met nasty people. I have. You know why? I looked in the mirror this morning. I thought to myself, man, you are one nasty guy. But um, we have met people like that. So let's get into it. In verse 1, it says, Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now, it says that Samuel died. And, And this is interesting because Samuel was one of the few allies that David had. As David was on the run from Saul, he really only had three people that he could count on. The first one, and most important, was the Lord himself. The second one was the king's son, Jonathan. And the third one was Samuel, the one who anointed Saul to be king and ultimately anointed David to be king as well. 
And so, but now Samuel passes from the scene, and Samuel's life was marked by one of integrity and one of obedience. He was this man who had a sterling character, one of those that the, 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 the news couldn't get a hold of any piece of him in a negative way. He was just a straight arrow from the very beginning, and he was instrumental in keeping the children of Israel in line with the word of God for their own good at a time when the country, remember um, in the time of the judges, right after the time of the judges, that there was still moral decline, spiritual decline. And if it weren't for Samuel, the country probably would have went further under, but he kind of was like the lightning rod, and he was the prophet, he was the last judge, and arguably, arguably the first Old Testament um, prophet, you know, with the exception of Moses, of course. But he was, um, he was a wonderful man. He developed a school of prophets in his hometown, which was very significant. And so now he passes from the scene. Now David has no other support other than Jonathan. And Jonathan and David, they met in, 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 in the chapter 23, and that was the last time that they were going to meet. So now he's just, just him and the Lord. And so David now, he, he, he flees from En Gedi, and now he's back in, the Bible says here, the wilderness of Paran, but many of the manuscripts say that he went back to Maon, which is the wilderness of Maon, which is basically the same place that he was before he went to En Gedi in the first place. And Carmel is just a little bit north, just a little bit north of Maon. So they're in the forest, him and his guys, and this is where the setting is. But I love how when it says that Samuel died, I love how the Bible can just say goodbye to a man of God in a single verse. It does right here, doesn't it? It just says, then Samuel died. <laughs> there's no fanfare. There's no, you know, summing up of his life. I mean, we've been reading about his life, but, you know, I, I, the Bible is just, he died. <laughs> and so, um, and, and I don't say that in a, um, in a way that would, that would be uh, insensitive. You know, there's no chapters extolling how great he was. Because truly, who was great in Samuel's life? It was God. It was God the Father who was really the great one in his life, right? But God also has the perspective that the saints, they simply close their eyes on this earth and they open their eyes on the next. They take their last breath here and it's their first breath with the Lord. And see, the same is true for you and I. The problem is, we, you know, God's perspective and our perspective are a little bit, or quite a bit different, actually. God looks at a man of God passing from the scene, and he's just like, he died, but he's with me. Really no change from God's perspective, except he's with him now, physically, or, you know, he's with him. But we have this hang-up with the physical, we want to preserve this physical. There's a great, great drive to stay alive. But from God's perspective, we pass, and then we open our eyes to time with him. But we don't see that perspective so much. We tend to put so much emphasis on the physical. But, you know, when we look at other men of God, other patriarchs in the Bible, the death of Adam, the Bible says in Genesis 5, verse 5, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. 
Abraham, Genesis 25, verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived. 127 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. And he was gathered to his people. The death of Jacob. And when Jacob, and this is Genesis 49, 33. When Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. And even Moses. Only a little more fanfare with him. Moses, the servant of God, Deuteronomy 34, verse 5. He died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab. Moses was 120, uh, 120 years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, nor his natural vigor diminished. But he died. He's done. And you notice that Samuel was, he wasn't, he wasn't preparing for retirement. He was an old man. And again, there's nothing wrong with preparing for retirement. I, I, I would encourage you to prepare because somebody's got to pay that bill. You got us faithful. He's going to help you. But we, we, we prepare, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But are we preparing for eternity? That's the question. For all of us, are we preparing for eternity? We spend all of our life preparing for retirement, but very few people prepare for eternity. Because, see, folks, whether we believe it or not, us as believers and unbelievers, there will be an eternity awaiting you, either in the presence of Almighty God where there's pleasures forevermore or in the absence of God in death and hell and the lake of fire. There is no other way. There's two ways. And we will all end up in one of those places. And thank God if you know Jesus, you know where you're going. To me, that's one of the wonderful joys of being a believer in Jesus Christ. As I know where I'm going, and it's not because of any good thing I've done. Not because of any good thing that you've done. Simply the merit of Christ on the cross. His blood on the cross. So, we need to prepare for eternity. And Samuel, I believe, was doing that. You know, Jesus, in the Mount of Beatitudes, he says, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there, where you will, there your heart will be also. And that is true. If, I, if I'm looking forward to heaven, I, my life is going to be about preparing for eternity. Everything that I do now is going to be based on that true reality. Because that's more of a reality, folks, than us sitting here today. I mean, I, I really believe that. We can't see it, and therefore we don't think it's really going to happen or that it doesn't exist. But it's more real than anything. In fact, I believe everything that we see physically is a result of some spiritual entity, you know, some spiritual reality. The things, the buildings we see, the, the environment that we live in is a result of spiritual things. So lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where nobody can break in and steal. Amen? But Samuel died, David's friend, his confidant, his mentor. In, in some ways, is gone from the scenes. And it says there at the end of verse 1 that David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, which, again, is really um, Maon, we believe. And this makes sense because Nabal lived in Maon, and David was close by. 
And he can't watch these, this man's sheep being so far down in the south. Because the wilderness of Paran is about 100 miles south of the very southmost city in Israel, in Beersheba. Go about another 100 miles south, okay? That's the wilderness of Paran. Again, so there's some um, translational things here that got um, a little confused. So David fled. And from Engedi, it's just, again, just west, going into Maon and, and Carmel. So it says in verse 2 now, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. This word Carmel literally means vineyard land or garden spot. And this is not the Carmel that you and I know when Elijah faced off with the 450 prophets of Baal. That Carmel is up in the northern part of Israel, in the, in the tribe of Asher, in that area up there. This Carmel is just a little bit south, a little bit north, actually, of the wilderness of Maon. And so this is uh, not the same place where Elijah was. But it's also a place where Saul, if you remember in chapter 15, he erected a monument in his name. Sounds like a pretty humble guy. What are you going to do today? I'm going to erect a monument in my name. You know, and he, he does. Filled with himself, he puts up a monument there. This is the place where it is. And notice at the verse it says, the man was very rich, and often a man's wealth was demonstrated by his livestock. The, the amount of sheep and the goats and the cattle and the servants that they had. And so that's how a man's wealth was uh, measured, really. So this man, Nabal, was a very wealthy man. And, you know, God doesn't have a problem with wealthy people. There's a misunderstanding about wealth in the church. And I think you all know that. But it, it behooves me to say it again. God doesn't have a problem with wealth. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were wealthy men. They had huge herds. They were wealthy in their days. They had a lot. But it's the attitude of the heart about those things. That's where God has a problem. That's where he has a problem. He's not concerned about our wealth, but our attitude toward it. What does it say in 1 Timothy 6, verse 10? We know this verse. For the love of money is a root a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and they've pierced themselves through with many sorrows. It is a, a root of all evil. Money is not the root. The love of money is a root of all kinds of mischievous and, and evil things. And we know that to be true. It's ironic, but... There are some people who have a problem with wealth, and they're wealthy, and there are those who strive for wealth, and they get it, and they can't handle it. It ends up destroying them. But I've known people who have been millionaires, people that I know that are millionaires, and they don't, you'd never know it by looking at them. They don't have some kind of attitude. They're not spendthrifts. They're, they're careful with their money. They're, they're, they're very different from the world's perspective. And God doesn't have a problem, you know, especially if you got it through honest gain. He doesn't have a problem with that. But what about the heart? It's always about the inside, isn't it? God never looks on the outside. He could care less about the outside. It's really what's on the inside. He's always looking at that. That's why Jesus said, You've heard that it was said that if a man commits adultery 
you know, then they both shall be put to death. But he says, I tell you, but I say unto you, if a man even looks at a woman with lust in his heart, he has already committed fornication, adultery. It's all about the inside, not about the outside. So in verse 3 it says, The name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail, and she was a woman of good understanding and a beautiful appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the seed, or of the house, of Caleb. Now this man's name, Nabal, um, the name only speaks of, uh, it not only speaks of, of the fact that, uh, of stupidity, that's literally what the word means, but it's also perversity and moral deficiency. So this was not a good man. He probably got his wealth by ill means. He was hard and ruthless to other people. He was just a scoundrel. I mean, this is, there are people like this in the world, and it's okay to say who they, what they are. You know a fruit by its tree, or you know a tree by its fruit, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, there's something wrong with his attitude, certainly, because this man was very well known to be a scoundrel, and his name even suggested. I wonder what happened when his mother bore him, and he comes out, and they, you know, they cut the umbilical cord, and the midwives are there, and they're cleaning them all up, and they put him in that nice little, same little, you know, um, you know, general hospital blanket that they, you know, multicolored thing that everybody sees in all the Facebook posts, and they hand it to her, and she's like, "Oh, he's so cute. I think I'll call him." Nabal. <laughs> I think I'll call him stupid. I think I'll call him perverse and moral deficient. And that's actually what he turns out to be. You might want to put a reference off to his name, and I'll give it to you. It's Psalm 14. We're just going to look at the first three verses of Psalm 14. The reason why this is significant is because David Later on, he writes this psalm, and he uses this man's name. The Hebrew word for fool is Nabal. In fact, in the very first three verses, Psalm 14, it says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. If you've come tonight to be lifted up in self-esteem, sorry. There is none who does good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who did understand, who, who seek God, and they have all turned aside. That's the answer. They've all turned aside. They've all together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. Boy, does that just drive the nail further into the coffin of our pride, doesn't it? And the sooner I come to realize that that is the truth about me, the better off I am going to be, and the better off you're going to be. If you know that within you there lies no good thing, that's a good place to start because then you know you need a Savior. Then you know that you are in need of a, of a physician because if you, don't think you're, if you think everything's fine, then you have no need of a, of a physician. But if I know I'm a scoundrel at heart, if I know that I'm born in sin and I'm continuing in it, then I need a Savior. I need somebody to save me from where I'm going to go if he doesn't intervene. Right, But that word fool is the same exact word, Nabal, Nabal. That's what it means. But Abigail, <laughs> this wonderful young lady, her name means my father is joy. And there couldn't be any more, any more opposite. And again, marriages in these days were usually done by fathers. They were prearranged marriages, probably when they were just young kids. 
their parents got together and, and brought the two of them together. So she, you know, what does a good girl like that have to do with this scoundrel? Well, it's probably arranged. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester's sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Podcast or Apple Podcast. You're also invited to join us on Sunday and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link on the website. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you with your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.